0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Krista Bilton talks about her new memoir, ironically titled Normal Family. Her mother, who is a lesbian, had Krista and her sister with the help of a man she convinced to become a sperm donor in the early 1980s, in the early days of sperm banks. She made him promise to never do that for anyone else. But he ended up making a living for about a decade as a donor, fathering dozens of children children many of whom Bilton later met. Also, Raphael Augustine, who was a writer on the TV series Jane the Virgin, tells his story of growing up as an undocumented immigrant in Southern California. His new memoir is called Illegally Yours. And rock critic Ken Tucker reviews the new album from singer and songwriter Bartiste Strange. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. For many years, Krista Bilton's father was known to the many other people he fathered as Donor 150 from the sperm bank, the California Cryobank. It was one of the very early sperm banks founded in 1977. However, Krista and her sister Caitlin knew him as Jeffrey, their father, although he was seldom around. Krista was the first offspring of his donated sperm, Her mother, Deborah, is a lesbian who was determined to have children. At that time, in the early 1980s, many sperm banks didn't even accept lesbians. She actually chose Jeffrey to father her children after seeing him at a salon. She convinced him to help her through a sperm bank. He reluctantly agreed. When she failed to get pregnant, they tried with a turkey baster at Deborah's home and were successful. Deborah made Jeffrey promise to never donate sperm to another woman. But donating sperm is how he ended up making a living for almost a decade. He was able to keep that a secret from Krista, her sister Caitlin, who he also fathered, and their mother Deborah until 2007 when a New York Times article was headlined, Sperm Donor Father Ends His Anonymity. That anonymous donor who came out was Jeffrey. It's estimated he fathered somewhere between a few dozen and over a hundred children. Krista Bilton's new memoir is titled Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings. The memoir is also about her upbringing and her mother, Deborah, who Krista describes as a pioneer in many of the New Age religions and a few cults, kind of the opposite direction of Krista's maternal great-grandfather, Colbert Olson, who served as the governor of California from 1939 to 43. The memoir is a fascinating story about growing up different and trying to understand the meaning of family when you're biologically related to so many children from the same donor. Krista Bilton, welcome to Fresh Air. So your mother made your father promise never to donate a sperm to any other woman. She paid him directly for the sperm and to keep that promise. Um, Tell us more about how you found out about your many other siblings.
1: Oh, yes. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for having me. Um, So as you mentioned, my mother discovered when this New York Times story came out that my father had secretly been a sperm donor for almost a decade. Um, And she discovered that because he called her on Valentine's Day in 2007 and told her to go get a copy of the New York Times. So she went down to the newsstand, and there on the cover was this story about my father... With his arm around a child that looked just like me and my sister, and so that led to um, what she and I would call a, a total nervous breakdown. Um, and she determined that, in addition to sending my father several threats about not mentioning us in any of his preceding media, she decided she was never going to tell my sister and I this big secret. Partially because she felt like the way we had been raised was already so different and. She, I think, as a as a lesbian raising kids in the 80s and 90s, already had a lot of shame about how different our family was. And she felt, I think, that discovering the secret of my father's and that we had all of these biological siblings would, she was worried that that would be incredibly upsetting to us. So she decided that she was never going to tell us this big secret. And, you know, as she proceeded to have this, nervous breakdown, she then discovered through a wild series of events that I get into in the book that I was potentially dating one of my brothers. And it was this uh, discovery that led her to finally sit my sister and I down on the sofa and tell us. That is so crazy to think that
0: you're dating somebody who w- was also the progeny of your father's sperm. (laughs) Um, So when did you, how old were you when you found out that your father was basically a sperm donor for your mother, but she stayed in touch with him and convinced him to have a role in your life?
1: Yeah, so this conversation that she had with us on the couch led, you know, I hadn't understood the relationship between my mother and father. I had been told growing up that, he and she were good friends who had decided to have a child together. So this moment when she unveiled the story of these donor children, it's really what led me to to start investigating the story of my life because it turned out that a lot of the stories my mother had told me about my upbringing were fibs, which was her tender word for bending the truth. So w-
0: when your father, Jeffrey, outed himself as this kind of prominent sperm donor. <laughs> um, he also outed your mother's secret, the one that she withheld from you, that your father was basically a sperm donor, that she had talked him into doing this first through a sperm bank and when that didn't work through, like, the turkey
1: baster. there. So um, how old were you when you found this out? When my mother decided to have children, she didn't know a single lesbian in her circle who had had a kid. So in a way, she was really embarking on in in this whole new world, and she had no no role models who had gone before her to look to and how to do this. And she, after a wild and crazy journey that involved her asking Warren Beatty if he wanted to father her child, they were good friends. Um, there was an organization called the Repository of Germinal Choice in the in the early '80s that was going around selling the sperm of Nobel laureates to try and have genius children. And I mean, it sounds wild uh, in retrospect. And after she decided not to use that sperm of this Nobel laureate she had purchased, she decided that she really wanted to know the father of her children. So she went on a manhunt and my father walked into a hair salon in Beverly Hills and she looked at him and he was this handsome, put together stranger that she said she saw, she looked at him and she just knew this was... This was the one. This was the one she wanted to father her children. So she asked him out to lunch and offered him $2,000 to father her child. And she took him to the California Cryobank um, to have him tested for STDs and to make sure that he had a high sperm count. And it's when he saw some men lining up to donate sperm that he got the idea he could do this professionally. So you first found out about some of your siblings that were
0: also fathered by Jeffrey through the sperm bank. Um, And at first you didn't want to have any contact with them. But then about 10 years later, you decided to invite many of them over to your home so that you could meet them. And your mother and your sister were dead set against this. Why were they
1: so opposed to it? And why did you actually want to go through with it? As you said, when I first discovered the siblings, I wanted nothing to do with them for almost 10 years. Um, You know, soon after my mother sat me down on the couch to tell me about this, they had started a Facebook group for the children of Donor 150 that was growing by the day. And soon after my mother told me about this biological family, one of those siblings reached out to me on Facebook. And... I had a panic attack um, because growing up, I had had such a complex family unit. My mother you know, had a hard time staying in relationships, so in addition to having my father in and out of my life, I also had many second moms who would come in sometimes with their own children, and so I would develop these relationships with these step-siblings, and then when they broke up, those would end. And so I think the idea of having more family members Um, more potential family members was just so overwhelming for me that I couldn't deal with it at that moment. And then I had an absolutely wild experience with one sister who it turned out had gone to the same tiny art school across the country that I had gone to. And when she and I connected through an absolutely wild series of events and she had such an enthusiastic view of this entire thing, it, it changed my attitude and it made me realize that the way I viewed this larger biological family was largely a choice and that any moment I could I could be enthusiastic about it and see the beauty in it. And and I became curious. Um, so I sort of let her take the lead and, and she suggested that I meet some of the siblings. And so that's why I invited them to my house
0: when you gathered some of your siblings together at your home what did you feel you had in common with them, both like biologically,
1: physically, but also emotionally? Hmm. The genetic similarities between me and the siblings are, are truly wild. I mean, of course, there's a lot we don't share in common, but the vast majority of us have the same big toe. We have the same dimple on our left cheek. Uh, many of us share ADD as something we struggle with. Um, we all have the same laugh. So the similarities were truly wild. I think also the emotional experience of this discovery, many share a similar journey with it. And of
0: all of them, you are the only one who grew up knowing your father. That's right. So did they feel like family or did they just feel like people who shared some traits and shared the same father, although they didn't know it until many years later? I mean, how connected did you feel to them?
1: You know, it's bizarre that I, I felt very connected to them in, in, a, in a strange way. Um, I, I've heard, you know, I grew up in a very tiny family. I didn't have cousins, but several of them who had larger families um, compared it to the experience of having cousins. There's definitely a, a biological connection that I don't think you can deny, and, and most of them feel that way. My guest is Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir, Normal
0: Family, on truth, love, and how I met my 35 siblings. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Ken Tucker will review the new album from singer and songwriter Bartise Strange. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir, Normal Family, on truth, love, and how I met my 35 siblings. It's about growing up the daughter of a lesbian who became pregnant in the early 1980s through a sperm donor who kept secret that he went on to make a living donating sperm for about a decade and father dozens, maybe even over 100 children. Let's talk a little bit about your mother's predicament in the early 1980s. As a a lesbian who wanted to have children, when being gay wasn't as accepted as it is today, although today it is definitely totally not accepted in many circles and in many states. But um, in many places, things have changed since the early 80s. But she didn't have a lot of options in terms of how to, you know, how to have a baby, how to become pregnant. So can you talk a little bit about the position that she was in and what she told you about that?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because growing up, my mother was very much in and out of the closet. You know, I think she had a complex relationship to her sexuality, having grown up in a very conservative family in the 50s and 60s at a time when, you know, she would later tell me that when she when she realized she was a lesbian she thought she was the only one in the world. And she didn't even know that the word lesbian existed. And that's just such a different time period. We've come so far from then that I can't even fathom what that psychological experience would have been like. You know, in the year she was born, the psychology manual still called homosexuality a mental disorder. So my mother had a lot of shame about her sexuality, and I think she carried that shame. And in many ways, the book while it's about finding this larger family, it's it's also a portrait of growing up with my larger-than-life gay mother and also what that was like in the 80s and 90s.
0: When she met your father at a salon, when she saw him at a salon and introduced herself, and this was in Beverly Hills, she not only found him physically attracted, when she asked him about his life, she was very taken with what she found out about him? What did she learn about him at that first meeting that made her so impressed, that reaffirmed, yes, he should be the father of my children?
1: She, um, both of his parents had gone to Ivy League colleges, and yet he had dropped out of college to study transcendental meditation. And as my mother was someone who had pioneered many New Age cults in the 70s and 80s. I think that she and my father shared a very spiritual outlook on life. But she also liked the prestigious background of his parents. And she also... Um, they were wealthy. I think they were Harvard-educated. They were wealthy, Harvard-educated. Her, His mother had gone to Wellesley. He, had, he told her that his great-uncle had been a Supreme Court justice. That turned out to be a fib. Um... But, but yeah, she, she liked many, many aspects of his background. He seemed highly intelligent, which he was, artistic. He played the guitar and and was musical. So I think he, he checked off a lot of her boxes. But then, of course, he also agreed to do it, which was, you know, pretty shocking, I think. He agreed reluctantly. How did your mother convince him?
0: She gave him $2,000. <laughs> very convincing. An offer he couldn't refuse.
1: <laughs> yes. And I i don't think he realized what he was signing up for. I think my mother had a plan for him that was well beyond that initial transaction. Um, well, it's not
0: what he signed up for. He signed up for, okay, I'll do it, but I want no responsibility for the child. But after giving birth, when she was asked to sign the birth certificate and and that she needed to put the father's name on it, and she needed his signature, I think, she convinced him, just like, please come and do this. And so he officially became your father, as opposed to like an anonymous, like sperm donor. And then she kept kind of reeling him in more and more by paying him to visit you, something you didn't
1: learn about till many years later. That's right. Um, My mom, my mother is a magical and incredibly loving woman, but she's also incredibly complex and willful. And I think, yeah, in many ways, this book is, is as I said, gr- about growing up with her. She's a woman who struggled with alcoholism. Like I said, someone who had cycled through several cults. And she's someone who, throughout my childhood, often paid the bills through wild pyramid schemes that led us to living in multi-million dollar mansions one minute, to being on the verge of homelessness, the next. So it's about this biological family, but it's also a portrait of, of growing up with my mother.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what it was like then for your father, Jeffrey, to donate to sperm. I, I mean, after your mother paid him to do it out of her own savings, and then he ended up you know, doing it professionally, so to speak, at, at the uh, sperm bank. So how did it work at the sperm bank? What were the payments like?
1: How often was he allowed to to donate? A wild thing about this story is this larger conversation about the ethics around sperm donation. I mean, one thing that's wild is that, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was really the birth of this, of this business. And back then, it was really the Wild West, and, and a man could donate as many times a week as he was able to produce enough sperm for the donation. And my father did do that for almost a decade. And so what's especially wild to consider is that there's still no regulation in the United States. In the UK, a donor sperm can be used to create a maximum of 10 families, but in the US it's different. And there's no legal limits on how many children a donor can produce.
0: He became the most popular donor at the sperm bank, the California cryobank. There was a waiting list for his sperm. What what did he do
1: to describe himself that made him so appealing? There were a few things. One was that the nurses recommended my father to many families, um, partially because they saw how physically good-looking he was. He was you know, the year after, or sorry, the month after I was born, my father appeared as the centerfold in Playgirl magazine. So he was a very physically handsome person. And he had this pedigree of these parents that had gone to these big schools. And he was also strategic, as he describes himself, when he wrote his donor profile, which is that many of the donors that were donating at this early time were, were men that the sperm bank had recruited from the medical school at UCLA. And my father was this artistic, spiritual man that in many ways stood out for families that weren't looking for the med student. So his profile at that time was just so different from most of the men that were in that, that donor book. I think that that can, is a lot of it. I also think perhaps it's because a lot of men didn't donate for as long as he did, so they had a big supply of his sperm. Um, I've also heard stories that the head of the California Cryobank was himself promoting my father's sperm. When when parents would call and ask which donor which which should we use, he would say, You should use donor one fifty. He even went so far as to have my father be the only donor that came to the sperm bank's second grand office opening. Although your
0: mother was convinced that he would be the perfect donor. She slowly started to discover disturbing things about him. I don't think she was pleased when she learned that he was a playgirl centerfold a month after you were born. And then it turns out he made his living for a while doing stripograms dressed as a police officer.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: So it was just like happy birthday, you're busted, ha ha, this is a stripogram, that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. And then there were medical problems, too. So talk about some of the disturbing things that your mother slowly found out about him.
1: You know, sometime after I was born, he started calling her in the middle of the night with visions of Mother Mary coming to him, telling him he was the second coming of Christ. Um, he, He had some very peculiar spiritual beliefs that weren't shared by her. Um and he lived a very alternative lifestyle. So he he didn't really you know, he had odd jobs, as you mentioned, as a stripogram, um, as a playgirl centerfold. And as she got to know him and as she brought him into my life as this father figure, the way that he lived his life wasn't necessarily the way she had the projected image of him that she had.
0: And then over time, he started believing in conspiracy theories about 9-11. He became homeless. For a while, he was trying to support himself on the Venice Beach boardwalk, selling massages for $10 a massage. Um, your mother tried to stay in touch with him and tried to help him, buying him things, giving him money when she could, letting him stay at your home sometimes. Um, did you sense that there were problems? Did you sense that he was having mental health problems? I should mention here before your mother met him, when he was around 20, he was diagnosed
1: as having paranoid schizophrenia. Yes, that that fact is something I only learned in researching my book, actually, when, when talking to his brother. Um, so that was a surprise to me as well. And my father doesn't believe that he has mental illness, I should say. So and he didn't believe with that he didn't agree with that diagnosis so he felt that there was no need to mention it in his donor profile because he thought that it was ridiculous and you know since that time we know a lot more about mental illness we know a lot more about the biology of it and i didn't i didn't know growing up that that could be something that that was in my genetic inheritance i, I didn't I just thought my father was this quirky, eccentric man. And for much of my upbringing, I just, I loved him and and enjoyed when he was around. Krista Bilton,
0: thank you so much for telling us some of your story. And congratulations on your memoir.
1: Thank you so much, Terry, for having me.
0: Krista Bilton's new memoir is called Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings. Farm to Table is the name of the new album by singer-songwriter Bartice Strange. It's his second album following his highly acclaimed 2020 debut, Live Forever. As a black artist operating in the indie rock space, Strange makes distinctively original music, and rock critic Ken Tucker says that where his debut album showcased a highly eclectic, intense performer, his new album is even more impressive for its assurance and daring.
2: There's reasons for heavy
0: heart
2: This past year I thought I was broken You look so nice in a cherry scar
3: T. Strange has described the music he makes as occupying, quote, this kind of weird indie alternative space. He's spoken in interviews about the difficulties of being black in the largely white world of indie rock. To judge by his songs, he's made that distinction work for him artistically. On the new album Farm to Table, he offers the song Hold the Line, which he says he wrote after seeing George Floyd's daughter speaking on television not long after her father's murder. It's a big, devastating song that starts out quiet and near hopeless.
2: Hold the line. Hold the love There's a whole world of people Wanna be where you're going right now Say that, babe See that, child Can't imagine what's running through a young man now Again You've taken something of mine You're reaching for more than my life What happened to the man with that big old smile He's calling to his mother now
3: Given voice lessons by his mother, an opera singer, when he was a kid, Strange, who was born Bartiz Cox, has been literally all over the map. Born in Ipswich, England, and raised in Mustang, Oklahoma. Did a stint in the arty environs of Brooklyn and played in hardcore bands in Washington, D.C. What he's ended up creating are artful combinations of influences that very intentionally cut across boundaries.
2: Every day I talk and turn. I like-
3: If you're wondering about the album title Farm to Table, he means it literally. It's a shorthand way to summarize one version of his journey, from growing up on a farm in Oklahoma to, as he said in interviews, being at the table with other musicians he esteems. He enumerates some of those musicians by name in his song Cosines, nodding to acts he's opened for in recent years, including Phoebe Bridger's Courtney Barnett, and the Justin mentioned here is Justin Vernon, otherwise known as Bon Iver.
2: Damn, just got out the van. Universal, hit me about some texts I need to send. Need my address for some checks that they forgot to send. Time to flip this transit, I think I'm gonna need the binge. I'm in LA, I'm with Phoebe, I'm a genius, Dan. I'm the Chateau, I'm with Lucy, I just got the stand. Hit up Courtney my eyes say i already stand i'm on facetime i'm with justin we already friends we already friends we already friends i'm on facetime i'm with justin we already friends i'm a thief when things get big look i am going steal your fans i'm with martin in a middle we grind and making bread
3: sometimes bartee strange croons in one verse and raps in the one immediately after a song might commence as an acoustic ballad and then shift gears into a furious guitar rave-up. Many of the songs on farm-to-table don't bother with choruses, except for the one or two that are nothing but choruses. Strange is at once one of the most idiosyncratic musicians, and one of the most immediately charming and catchy. He may be thankful he's performing on bills with artists he admires, but I wonder if he realizes they're probably thankful this persistently adventurous artist agreed to perform on the same bill as them.
0: Rock critic Ken Tucker reviewed Farm to Table, the new album by Bartiz Strange. Coming up, we hear from Rafael Augustin, who was a writer on the TV series Jane the Virgin. He emigrated with his parents from Ecuador when he was seven. His life was turned upside down when he wanted to apply for a driver's permit, and his parents had to tell him He was undocumented and didn't have a social security number. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Dave Davies has the next interview. Here's Dave to introduce it.
4: Our guest, Rafael Agustin, is a successful TV writer and producer, but that's not the subject of his new memoir. It's about his experience growing up as an undocumented immigrant in the United States. Augustine was born in Ecuador, and when he came to the United States with his parents as a seven-year-old, he was so young and naive that he thought the Fourth of July fireworks over the Los Angeles airport were there to herald his family's arrival. His book tells the story of his parents leaving their middle-class existence in Ecuador and working for menial jobs in America, and his life of learning English, constantly moving from school to school— and figuring out how to apply to college with a strong high school record but no social security number. There are moments of heartbreak and humor, like his dad's exhilaration upon getting a publisher's clearinghouse notice from a man named Ed McMahon that he may have won a million dollars. Rafael Agustin was a writer for the CW Network show Jane the Virgin and is now CEO of the Latino Film Institute, where he oversees the Youth Cinema Project and the Los Angeles Latino International Film Festival. His new book is Illegally Yours, a memoir. Rafael Agustin, welcome to Fresh Air.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
4: You know, a lot of immigrants come to the United States these days from pretty desperate circumstances, you know, driven by poverty or violence or... Persecution. Your your story is different. Tell us about your life in Ecuador.
5: Yeah, you know it is different, but not too different. So, I had a little privileged upbringing, right? Um, my grandfather was well known in his city of Guayaquil, Ecuador. I come from a long line of lawyers and politicians, but my mom and my dad were doctors, you know, a pediatric surgeon and an anesthesiologist who came to this country to work at a car wash and work at a Kmart. I didn't understand why we would leave like our cushy existence for the hardships of Los Angeles, California. But but when I looked back, uh, you know, as an older man and tried to understand why they would make this crazy, insane journey, why would they sacrifice so much? Why would they leave their livelihoods behind? I look back at, you know, when I was born, like the democratically elected socialist president of Ecuador, his plane just miraculously blew up midair when he was trying to nationalize the country's petroleum. Again, this is a comedic book, but I had to really look into the hardships of what has U.S. foreign policy been doing all over Latin America that has forced these immigrants to come to this country? And while I barely touch on it in the book, Conversely, we could ask like, you know, what was Eisenhower doing in Guatemala or Nixon doing in Chile or even, you know, Reagan all over Central America? Um, I, I hear a lot of Americans say things like, you know, we don't like refugees and we don't like undocumented workers. But I mean, the truth is then we need to stop creating them.
4: Yeah, there's certainly at least 150 year history of intervention in In Latin America, I mean, you, I'm sure, talked a lot to your parents in researching this book. Did they cite those issues as part of what made them think of coming to the United States? Were they troubled by the instability of the country?
5: They they did. And it is the political and economic turmoil. So they came here thinking that things would be calmer, would be better, that their work can get them ahead in life but little did they know that they'd be caught up in the menial jobs and trying to learn the language and the hard realization the medical licenses don't transfer from country to country.
4: Tell us a little more about your parents' medical careers in Ecuador, what they did.
5: Yeah, so my father was a pediatric surgeon and my mother was an anesthesiologist. And one of the earliest memories I have, is I must've been like six years old, seven at most, And my mom was at the hospital uh, operating and my dad gets a call like close to midnight and, you know, they didn't have money for a babysitter. So my dad just took me with him to the hospital. And I remember one of the nurses put me in like medical scrubs and put covers on my feet, gave me a, a surgical mask, walked me down a long corridor and shoved me inside an operating room. And there I was watching my dad operating on a little girl my age, her chest was completely opened by metal tongs. um, And she had been shot in the back with a rifle. And my dad was the only surgeon that could operate in this very complicated surgery and hopefully save this child's life. And I noticed just by her kind eyes that my mom was the the doctor applying to anesthesiology in the surgery. So there I was, like six, seven years old, watching my parents save a child's life, which they did. Um, And to me, it felt like 20 minutes. But when my mom talks to me about it today, she's like, I can't believe you stood there for seven hours during one of the most complicated surgeries we ever had. That is so crazy to me.
4: Yeah. And, And you remember that.
5: Vividly. Yeah, you don't forget something like that.
4: So, so when you left, as you tell the story in the book, your parents didn't even tell you that you were moving to stay. It was just kind of for a vacation. You get there and you know uh, things are different. I mean, there's no maid to make you lunch. I mean, you're living in a a garage apartment of some relatives who were there. You had relatives in the states already did Did you resent it did you I don't know what was it like?
5: Well, you know, they they did lie to me. They say we're going on vacation, and after several months going into a year, I was like, "Wait, when are we? <laughs> how long is this vacation lasting?" And you know, when you pointed out at the top, I did grow up in this cushiony existence with like maids and chauffeurs, and we come to the United States, and I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute! Here we're the maids and chauffeurs. <laughs> what, what what's happening?"
4: Well, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was that it was clearly a, a you know, a a different standard of living for you and a loss of income, but it's also a loss of status. I mean, your parents were people who, you know, they saved lives in hospitals and were treated with respect as doctors. And I mean, I certainly hold no disrespect for anybody that works in a car wash. I mean, I come from a working class family and and honor hourly work, but for them, it must have been so different to to being sort of an anonymous sort of helper at so many jobs. Were you aware of that or did they talk about it at all?
5: Yeah, uh, I, I did carry their sacrifice close to my heart because I, I did see them be doctors in you know one week and then work these manual jobs the next week. Um, but the, the beauty of our story is how, no matter how hard things got, they tried to shield the reality of our documentation from me so that I wouldn't have to experience that. Yeah, it was hard to come to a new country, make new friends, learn a new language. And we moved a lot, right? I didn't know why we moved so much because, you know, every time someone discovered the, the, their immigration problems, we had to pack up and leave and go to a different town to f- try to find a different job. But all of that, they withheld from me. So I, I was able to grow up an oblivious, stupid American kid. And I loved my life. I loved the United States. And in those late nights, after my parents got from home from work, from a long days of work, and you're just so exhausted and want to disconnect, that we would start watching like American TV shows and American movies together. That's where my love for the entertainment industry began. I was like, wow, this is the one thing I can share with my parents in this country. We didn't have time for each other in this country. They were too busy working all the time. But we always connected late at night, watching a movie or a TV show to escape our realities and that's when I was like oh I think I want to do this for a living.
4: Yeah, it's interesting how a kid you know, kind of takes their surroundings for granted most of the time and you can kind of sell them for a, a while on a different idea. Like you are <laughs> Only dead, for a while though. Your dad's special meals on Sunday, tell us about that.
5: <sighs> okay, so um my parents worked like 7 days a week. We we really didn't see each other. They worked through holidays too. But every Sunday, we would get together to go to AMPM, which is like a convenience store attached to like a gas station here in uh, in the West Coast in Southern California. And it's kind of like a 7-Eleven. So we would go into the AMPM and it would always be the, the three of us, my mom and dad and me, and, and we would get burgers together. And I was in love with like American burgers. I mean, ketchup? I had never tasted anything as good in my life. There's no ketchup this good outside of the United States, let me tell you they have to put some kind of drugs or crack in it because it's, it's so freaking amazing. Uh, and then we would go to AMPM and I would eat these burgers and it was like the time of my life. And then a few years l- later, not, not, not a few years later, many years later, I asked my dad, what were your lowest points in the United States? And he said, when I had to take you and your mom to AMPM, because I had no money then. And all I could afford was that special that they had, two burgers for 99 cents. And that nearly broke my heart. I was like, that's like the highlight of my childhood. And those were his worst moments in this
4: country. You know, it's interesting that you're right that um, you never thought of yourself as, as having an ethnic identity. You were a white kid in Ecuador like so many the others. Uh, a
5: white kid with the beautiful olive tan.
4: With an olive tan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when you got to the States, I don't know, did, did you become aware of ethnic and racial differences among the students? Did that kind of hit you at all? Immediately.
5: Immediately. And that, that's, to me, more shocking than discovering that I was undocumented was discovering that I wasn't white. I internalized so much of the film and TV shows that I saw from the United States as a child that I thought I looked like the people on the TV screens. But when I get to public school here in the United States, I was surrounded by the great American diversity, right? I see the Asian American students, the African American students. I'm like, what is this? I've never seen this in film and TV before. And then I saw them, the Mexican American and Central American students. That's when I realized, oh my God, I look more like them than the white students. So I guess I'm not white. And I'm like in third grade trying to figure all this out in my head. Uh,
4: You got a little older and you got to high school. Um, West Covina High, I think, right? Um, (laughs) Correct. uh, There was diversity in the school, you say. Uh, I don't know. What were the different cliques or crews and how did you find yours?
5: (laughs) Well, the wonderful thing about growing up in San Gabriel Valley is that it, it is truly one of the most diverse regions in the entire united states so i like to point out that the asian american kids were the cool kids and the African american kids were the nerds and the latin american kids were the surfers um and i i was always looking for my my group i didn't know where i belonged that was previous you know i was an immigrant boy that was a wannabe little gangster but i was studious and i love my mother (laughs) and i love listening to punk rock and spanish music there wasn't like a click for me and for a while, I not knowing my place, the way that changes is when I discover that I was undocumented. Because when that news hits me, I mean, first I get depressed, but then I realize I want to become the most popular kid at school.
4: Well, now, how did you find out?
5: Well all of my friends are starting to drive and they're starting to apply to go to colleges. So I do the same thing. And, um, I, you know, filled out my DMV driver's permit paperwork without telling my parents. And then I was told I needed them to sign off on it. So I come home and I'm like, Hey, I need you to sign this. And that's when they looked at each other and they were like, well, you need to sit down. And we had to talk. It wasn't about the birds and the bees. It was about Uncle Sam in the United States. Essentially, they told me that I was undocumented. Um, they told me that they had social security numbers, but I didn't. And, you know, I, I write that it's like, it was essentially an end of the world comet hitting my frosted tip head. Because I, I grew up watching and admiring, like, Zach Morris. I know it sounds dumb, but as a first-generation American, I felt I had no guide in the United States. So I started watching Saved by the Bell, and I was like, huh, that's what I want. I don't want to live in this broke, poor little Hispanic barrio. I want to turn West Covina High into Bayside High.
4: Yeah, so so Zach Morris is this totally cool, handsome star of the show, like Saved by the Bell,
5: right? He is, like... Not just cool, but he has that ease That white privilege gives you And that charm And he has like bleach blonde hair I mean, so I bleach my hair blonde I joined the band so I can Have my own hit, Friends Forever Zach Attack, if anyone remembers that um, But when I discover I'm undocumented I don't know how to deal with it Because there's no episode of Saved by the Bell Where Zach gets deported So I feel all alone And confused completely confused by my new reality. Uh, I-, I jokingly say that I told my parents, like, how am I supposed to join the campus Republicans now if I'm undocumented?
4: <laughs> At the end of your book, in the acknowledgements, you make the point, you tell us some interesting stories about your romantic encounters with girls in junior high and high school. But, and you, you've changed the names because why bring them into this stuff. But in the acknowledgements, you thank a woman who you say was willing to marry you after high school to help with your immigration problem. I, I assume this marriage did not actually happen, right?
5: The marriage didn't happen. And, and I, I, man, I'm getting teary-eyed just listening to you talk to me about it. Uh, yeah, Jane, Jane Becerra was uh, a girlfriend at the time and, and she knew... I mean, I told her my secret and she was willing She was willing to marry me to, to help me. But we didn't because it was around this time that we finally received our, our permanent residency paperwork. And it took nearly 13, 14 years to process, but we applied. We were just waiting. My parents had hoped that all of this would have been taken care of before I got out of high school, but it took longer than that.
4: Right. I was going to mention this, that they had, without telling you, applied for a permanent residency. And so, and so that happens. Were it not for that, you might have married her, huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to college um, and you were in forensics debate, did really well at this. But you also got the acting bug. You – you know you started doing plays and eventually applied to and were accepted to the UCLA School of Theatre, Film and Television, majoring in theater um, And when you tried out for class plays, I'm wondering what kind of roles you got and whether you felt that there was you know were there ethnic profiles that people were looking for for roles
5: um Well, it's funny that that you mentioned the the acting part of my life because I had been acting like an American for most of it so being on stage felt natural to me I had been I felt like I've been playing a role my whole life again you can't make this stuff up because if I write this in the script and my producer or showrunner would be like that's not realistic but I received my acceptance to UCLA and my acceptance from my permanent residency on the same day hmm. wow oh my god when we opened those <laughs> that mail together my, my mom dad and I just hugged each other and cried on the floor it was like 14 years of pain, all gone, and the promise of a new American future. So I end up at UCLA, uh, like an acting scholarship, and I think, okay, this is going to be, this is it, this is my path, this is my career. But I quickly realized that there are no roles for people of color, you know, let alone like Latinos and Latinas. So I, I quickly realized that for me to have a career doing this, I had to write myself into existence. And that's how I became, begrudgingly, became a writer.
3: Well,
4: Raphael Augustine, thank you so much for speaking with us.
5: Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing.
0: Dave Davies spoke with Raphael Augustine, author of the new memoir, Illegally Yours. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. I'm Terry Gross.